0: Today is January 25th, 2021. The Arizona GOP falls wholly in line with Trump. Biden signs an executive order that could allow for transgender girls to participate in high school sports. And Republicans try to ice the impeachment proceedings. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today on Split the Difference podcast hosted by yours truly, Austin Taylor. I'm serious when I say we were working tirelessly yet again to bring you all the best news and insights, looking at stuff on the left, looking at stuff at the right, trying our best to find that sweet truth that lies right there in the difference, and y'all, we done did it. We're done bringing y'all the best podcast that we have done yet or your money-back guarantee. So, if you are interested in looking at all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, trying your best to be that voice in the middle that tries to push back all of the divisiveness, all that bad stuff that we're seeing right now in our world today in politics, then this is the place for you. Come along as we hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So, for our first story of the day, the Arizona GOP, the good old party, Goes and backs Trump wholeheartedly. I mean, they go after it. Okay. So the Arizona GOP voted to censure three Republicans that have openly voiced problems with Trump. All of them, of course, out of Arizona. So the first is uh, Governor Doug Ducey. Second is former Senator Jeff Flake. And the third is Cindy McCain, the wife of the late John McCain. So interestingly enough, the censures were openly result of refusing to back Donald Trump. And we have to remember, okay? So we all kind of are on the same page. A censure is not actually any type of, uh, I guess, legally problematic thing, right? Like nothing actually will happen to any of these people, any type of legal sense, right? I don't want you to get the idea that the Arizona GOP is having these people like arrested or sent to jail or something bad happening. It basically just means that the Arizona GOP is openly rebuking these people and saying that it does not fall in line with what the GOP in Arizona supposedly stands for. great example of this is like, for example, last week uh, the House voted to censure Donald Trump, right? Well, nothing legally poor happened to Donald Trump as a result of that. It was basically just the House of Representatives coming out and formally saying, we denounce what you've done. So, um, all three of these Republicans are open moderates, right? Uh, and they've come out against Trump in one way or another. So Doug Ducey, the governor, enacted emergency orders uh, that the Arizona GOP said were essentially dictatorial um, powers, dictatorial powers, basically. Um, the whole all of the orders that he admitted were pretty much in line with what the vast majority of other governors across the country have done throughout the COVID-19 pandemic basically limiting restaurants and bars and limiting people from going out and doing a bunch of stuff trying to people keep people quarantined and kind of have a little bit of a shutdown And you've seen that all across the country. However, if you fall wholly in line with Trump, like the Arizona GOP do, COVID is a hoax and none of it is real. So uh, the orders that Doug Ducey did were not in any way, I don't think, out of line from what a lot of other GOP governors did. Uh, It just doesn't help push the agenda that Donald Trump was saying COVID-19 wasn't a big deal. So they censured Doug Ducey. Jeff Flake, he was a uh, former, I believe, uh, senator. Yeah, yeah, former senator. Um, has long been openly opposed to Trump. So while Jeff Flake was still in office when he was still a senator for Arizona, He caught a lot of flack from Trump because he basically came out and was like, I'm not going to support this guy on absolutely anything because Donald Trump does not represent the values of the Republican Party. If you remember way, way back, like a million years ago to 2016, there were actually a good portion of Republicans that were called the never Trumpers, right? And this was a group of actually made up of incredibly conservative Republicans and also some moderates that were like, I am never going to get on board with Trump. He's morally reprehensible. The things that he says are absolutely awful. I'm not going to get behind this populist agenda that he wants to push. The I don't want to get behind, uh, especially a lot of the trade that he's against free trade. He's very, very isolationist. These are not pillars of the Republican Party. And as a result, we are not going to back him. Jeff Flake was one of those never Trumpers. Always has been. He came out and formally endorsed Joe Biden going into the election caught a ton of flack from Republicans for that and, of course, from Donald Trump as well. Um, and as a result, the Arizona GOP came out and said that Jeb Flake was now basically a liberal and uh, he should be censured by the GOP. Cindy McCain also endorsed Biden. Uh, if you remember, Donald Trump and John McCain had a lot of history. Donald Trump said a bunch of absolutely horrendous things about John McCain John McCain was an open moderate right he was not your far far right-wing conservative Republican he was fairly conservative at that point in time especially around 08 and when he ran against Obama and then you know his tenure all the way up into in, as a, um, in Congress in Arizona, in order to be elected at that point in time, you had to be at least relatively conservative. So John McCain, of course, held conservative and Republican-like pillared principled, uh, I guess, ideologies. However, he was not going to be like he's not necessarily like a Mitch McConnell, right? John McCain was willing to reach across the aisle. Honestly, in some ways, he was some he was a little bit similar to maybe like a Mitt Romney today. Um, even though Mitt Romney really, even just eight or ten years ago, would have been considered pretty conservative um, by the you know by the majority of the Republican Party, Trump I think has kind of pulled people in a more conservative direction. But um, Yeah. So Cindy McCain came out and endorsed uh, Biden and was accused by the Arizona GOP of supporting and pushing, quote, leftist policy policies and actually saying that she doesn't support Donald Trump. And that's why she's being censured. So uh, interestingly enough, there's a lot of people in the Republican, basically on the Republican side of the aisle that are looking at this as almost kind of like the first of many that are kind of like Purity tests, quote unquote, right? Sent from a pro-Trump faction of the GOP. There are still many Republicans that will not give up their support of Trump, even though he's now gone, and we will get into that as well into our third story. Uh, But as time passes, I think we're really going to start to see more instances where people try to use this as a gauge of whether or not you are a true Republican. There's going to be a lot of fighting within the Republican Party to establish what the true identity of the Republican Party is going to be. As a result, you have to have some type of litmus test. Well, a lot of the pro-Trumpers want to use the litmus test that is very, very simply, did you or do you support Donald Trump? If you don't, you're not a member of the Republican Party. You're out, okay? We don't want anything to do with you. You step aside. Donald Trump is our leader. He's our hero. He's our dude. We're riding with him into the sunset, right? Um, So all of this actually comes on the heels of within the past week, there's been a lot of stories starting to come out that Donald Trump is thinking about and trying to culminate together a group of people to establish a third party. This new third party supposedly is going to be called the Patriot Party. Okay, So the more moderate Republicans, of course, will do their best to steer clear of this, but it's going to have some pretty dramatic impacts to the party as a whole. So if you look in Arizona specifically, there's been a clear push to the left by the voting electorate. Clear. Biden won Arizona in 2020, like many of you know, flipping the state blue for the first time since 1996 when Bill Clinton did it. That is a long time. And you saw that with a couple of different states. Georgia is a great example as well. Uh, Martha McSally lost her senatorial race there as well, uh, uh, the Republican that was running there. So, I I mean, you can see that Arizona is like really, really drifting blue. And a lot of people are looking at that and they're saying that is 100% the fault of Donald Trump, right? He came out, he was brash, populist. The Arizona voters were not having it at all. So, Uh, Many are kind of viewing this as a little bit of a potential sign of, you know, it's kind of what to come, right? We're starting to see the beginnings of the breakup of the party that has been around since the Civil War and has won the majority of elections since then, um, in terms of presidential elections, right? Um, With Republicans being censured for, quote, leftist ideology. And the criteria for that ideology being leftist is basically you don't support and you don't agree with and you aren't wholly behind Donald Trump that is going to cause gigantic factions within the Republican Party. So all of this, of course, plays into exactly what the left want. The Democrats want to stoke these fears. They want to stoke and drive a wedge into these problems as much as possible because when the way that our electoral system is is structured, for the most part, it is not really conducive to a three-party system at all, right? So, if you look at other, whether it's like parliamentary systems in France or, you know, or Britain or maybe just across Europe, you can start to see how like uh, their systems and their electorate systems are structured in a way where you can have multiple parties and you can have multiple uh, different kind of like factions of political power kind of rise up and be structured because of the way that their electoral system is is set up. Ours is, especially in the terms of the presidential at the federal level, the presidential level, especially, um, it's pretty much like a winner takes all type of system. Right. So uh, if you win the vote within your state, right, then that means that you are, all of the electorates, all of the electoral votes for that state are going to go towards you. Right. Even if it's only by a couple thousand votes. So Donald Trump lost Georgia by less than 12,000 votes. All 16 of the electoral votes went to Biden. So what that would mean is if there's a new patriot party that is solely Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters, then there's a Republican party and then there's a Democratic party. The, all, the vast majority of the Democrats, right, are going to be going voting on the Democratic ticket. Whereas the Republicans are going to have their vote split in half between the, those that support Donald Trump and then those that are going to remain loyal to the, Dem- to the Republican party, right? Effectively splitting the Republican vote giving the Democrats the most uh, votes for their one party out of all of the parties that are there present. Thus, you have the Democrats winning the elections. Um, So now, at this point, the future of the Republican Party now kind of rests in the hands of traditional GOP, basically rebranding and working to figure out how to move on post-Trump. Are they going to be able to consolidate power and convince people to vote for them, even though Donald Trump is not there? Tough Tough call for a lot of people in the GOP right now. We can see that for a couple states, though, they are 100 percent back in Donald Trump, maybe to their detriment in the future. Who knows? So with all of that having been said, let's hop on into our second story of the day. Story number two. So for our second story of the day, Biden signed an executive order on basically around it wasn't specifically on transgender athletes, but that's what caught the most attention. So last week, last Wednesday, Biden's first day in office, he signed a flurry of executive orders. We didn't get in touch on a ton of them in our podcast last Friday uh, because we focused mainly on the inauguration. There was a bunch of stuff in his speech that I felt like was important for us to go through. It's a bellwether moment in politics when you have a president that's inaugurated. It only happens once every four years. So that's what we focused on. However, now it's probably important to focus on one of those executive orders because it may have some you know, ripple effects throughout the country. So one of the executive orders Biden signed will push public high schools to allow biological males who are transgender, so transgender females, to participate in athletic events. And it doesn't just say, you know, it isn't just specifically about sports. It actually kind of covers a multitude of different things. It states stuff around like uh, them allowing, allowing them to go in the bathrooms that they want, the locker rooms that they want. There's one small bit of language around sports. So, Um, Basically, the idea behind it is if the publicly funded schools do not comply, they will face administrative action from the education department, either by fine or by loss of funding. So shortly after he signed this, the hashtag Biden erased women started trending all over Twitter. Okay, it just blew up. Everybody was tweeting it. A whole bunch of people were kind of in this big firestorm back and forth, caused a whole bunch of different debates. So all that having been said, let's hop on real quick. This is Fox News reporting on this now. Of President Biden's first executive orders was to allow transgender athletes to participate in girls sports. Quoting his order... Children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom, the locker room or school sports. The ACLU says this, their deputy director for transgender justice, states that attempt to bar trans girls from sports, regardless of age or of transition, medical intervention or anything else, with a new federal administration will now be risking lawsuits by the federal government, Justice Department intervention and the loss of federal funding. OK, so um, before okay, I can hear all of my more left-leaning listeners and subscribers right now. That is the most biased news source that you could possibly use in order to be able to do this. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you on this. Fox News obviously is going to have a right-leaning bent. That's their shtick. That's their thing. However, it was actually really, really difficult to get any reporting on this from a left-leaning source. So, I, what I found often, like, a lot of times is this, especially on the subject of gender identity and transgender activism, the more left-leaning sources actually don't cover it all that much. They pretty much just kind of ignore it outside of maybe like opinion articles and stuff on like maybe Huffington Post or NBC News or MSNBC, uh, because the majority of the people, even on the left, actually don't really support the inclusion of transgender women in female sports. Um, or they just don't see it as a gigantic issue, whereas the right side of the aisle see it as a direct attack on biology and are thus much more passionate about it and probably going to talk about it a lot more. So... That was why I used Fox News. Literally could, had a lot of trouble finding you know any other stuff from any other source that was a bit more left-leaning. So anyways, with all that having been said, um, Biden's executive order is not specifically speaking about only high school sports. That's where a lot of the attention started to gravitate to. But however, because of the broad language that is used and, you know, sports, the word sports being used in the language of one of the sentences, it will of course be used as justification for allowing transgender females to compete with girls and women within the sports at a high school and middle school level. Um, so there are currently guidelines that are set out by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, that have certain requirements that have to be met in order for trans women to compete against women, um, other biological females, uh, the NCAA, uh, also has guidelines as well where they're not required to actually have a successful gender changing surgery, but it does require a full year of hormone replacement therapy, uh, basically the lowering of testosterone, especially in order for a trans female to be able to compete. But all of that complexity is not at the high school level as of now, right? So a lot of people are looking at this and they're like, well, this is incredibly broad, open-stroke language, somewhat taking out of context a Supreme Court ruling that happened just last year in 2020 that did, that basically said you could not discriminate against people for their gender identity or whether they were transgender. Um, so, you know, a lot of complexity to this. So what is the left and what is the right thing? The left is actually somewhat split on this. I know it seems like there's like this big unified uh, front from the left side of the aisle, That's basically for transgender uh, athletes and for transgender rights and activism. But that's actually not really true. Uh, I think those are probably just the loudest voices that we often hear. But the left is kind of torn between... The promotion of trans inclusion and protections uh, of trans activities and you know protection of women athletes and basically the more progressive wing of the left applaud this because they view it as a step towards protecting and legitimizing the place of transgender students in the United States, whereas there's a more of a I guess it's primarily backed by uh, more feminists on the left side of the aisle that actually view a lot of the transgender activism as taking away from the rights of and the accomplishments of women. So we'll kind of break both of those two views down, all right? So the first view, that is totally for all of the transgender inclusion and everything, promoting transgender activism. People in this group believe that not allowing trans women to compete with other women tells the trans women that they are not who they believe that they are and discriminates against them based upon their gender identity. So the promotion here would be to push to allow transgender women who were a biological male and have transitioned to a female to be allowed to participate in biological female sports because it would basically be affirming them as women, right? The other portion of the left, primarily led by feminists, like I said before, believe this action actually hurts biological women that are competing in sports. Their main argument relies on the fact that even though biological males have undergone hormone replacement therapy, they are still biologically different from females that they compete against. They have larger hearts, lungs, greater bone density, uh, more muscle mass, etc. And as a result, they will be able to beat women in pretty much whatever sport they compete in because they have the benefit of biological Males' physical advantages, right? Because they were born a biological male. So, uh, what does the right side of the aisle say? The right is totally united against this. You pretty much are not going to find somebody on the right side of the aisle. It's it'll be tough to find someone on the right side of the aisle um, that is actually for a lot of trans activism. However, the argument from the right is not necessarily just to protect female athletes. It's mainly because they don't want the promulgation of law that would further promote the agenda of transgender activism. So that's not to say that the right side of the aisle doesn't care for women's rights at all or the equality of genders. I think it's just that the fighting against punishment dealt out by the federal government for not supporting transgender ideology is far more important to the right. Uh, than, you know, maybe the protection of, like, women's record state records at the high school or collegiate record, if that makes sense. So uh, there's a big difference between wanting women to be able to have a fair shot in sporting events and the deep, deeper argument of not wanting government to be involved in a situation at all, especially because the right thinks that this is actually more of a moral argument as opposed to a legislative or a, you know, governmental argument, Right they view uh the affirmation of transgender activism as uh as a rebuke against especially more judeo-christian uh like uh, more judeo-christian line of thinking that there are only biological males and females right so with all of that both sides of the aisle have some good and some bad okay the less argument that it is the responsibility of the government to protect its citizens from disc- discrimination Absolutely true, right? Um, Just in the same way that you would hope and you would expect for the government to step in and punish racial or religious or any other type of discrimination, they also need to step in and protect the rights of trans citizens that would be having their rights stripped or taken away from them simply because they are transgender, okay? Totally fair. However, the argument that trans females do not have Uh, the government mandated right to compete in women's sports is also a fair argument as well, okay? Uh, People, of course, do and should have the right to transition and do whatever they want with their body under the Constitution of the United States, all right? People can do with their bodies what they feel like they want to do with, okay? The government shouldn't step in and tell them what they can and can't do. So long as it's not causing, of course, immediate harm to those that are around them. This executive order seeks to also implement and give them the right to compete in whichever gender of sports that they wish to actually compete in right so it says not only do you have the right to transition to whatever you know gender that you feel you're most comfortable with but you also have the right to compete in the sports activities for whichever gender that you want to as well and that's where a lot of the argument starts to break down so what do i think about all this so it is a fact that there are physical differences between biological males and females There just are. There's a lot of stuff that comes out saying that there's no differences between males and females that is categorically, unequivocally, completely false, right? It just is. Um, The fastest female sprinter in the entire world is American Allison Felix, okay? Incredibly talented athlete. She has more Olympic gold medals than Usain Bolt, has all but completely dominated the women's sprinting world at a world-level record, or at a world-record level, for years now, okay? Her personal record, the best that she's ever ran for a 400-meter sprint is 49.2 second, 49.26 seconds, okay? There are currently 300 male high school track athletes just in America that are faster than her. She's the best sprinter in women's history. There's 300 high school boys that can beat her. It's incredibly clear that there are differences between the male and female biological bodies, right? it's just how it is okay and there have already been a multitude of world records that have been absolutely shattered by trans females in weightlifting and in other sports they've gotten a lot of news and a lot of headlines so it's clear that you know should trans women be allowed to compete they will of course absolutely dominate there's no question about that the question then is should the federal government step in and allow this to the detriment of biological women competing Personally, I do not think that trans women, a trans women athletes, should be allowed to compete with biological women. And it's not because I think that trans people don't have the right to compete. Of course they have the right to compete. I also think that they have the right to transition to whichever gender that they feel most comfortable with. It's none of my business, okay? If they want to transition, transition. It's a free country. You can do it. But it's actually because, in my eyes, if something is truly a right for one group, then it doesn't lead to the detriment of another. So for example giving women the right to vote in America didn't lead to detriment to the detriment of or disenfranchisement of men voters right it just allowed women the right to vote because they legally should have had the right to vote allowing black people the right to have access to the same public facilities as white people didn't eliminate white people the, the ability of white people to go to the bathroom right? It just gave black people the rights that they should have had to begin with. I don't see anything wrong with having transgender athletes compete against one another. There's nothing wrong with that. Or if they even wanted to compete against men athletes, okay? The bar is there. You, they can go ahead and they can compete in whatever way that they want to. It's their right to transition you know, we separate men and women's sports for a region, for a reason. In the same way, I think that we separate men and women's sports. I also think that we could separate and have an entire category for transgender athletes as well. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, I know that it's not the perfect fix because at the end of the day, there's likely not nearly enough transgender athletes at a high school or middle school level to be able to all compete against one another. But the dis- disenfranchising of women athletes in competing does not lead to the betterment of those female athletes, right? It, d- it actually retracts from female athletics in a lot of ways because they're competing against people that, you know, did not have the same biological framework that they did growing up and as a result have an incredibly clear advantage over the biologically female athletes, okay? Okay. If they want if people want to transition, if that's totally up to them, they can do what they want with their bodies. However, when it starts to impede on the rights and the abilities of others to be able to do the things that they need want or need to do, that's where I think we have to be able to draw the line. Obviously, some people may disagree with that. That's okay. We have our opinions, we hold them strongly. Hopefully they're somewhat educated, but at the end of the day, we can reach across the aisle and we can communicate about this effectively and cohesively and without a bunch of anger because that's what we do here on Split the Difference Podcast. So with all of that having been said, let's move on in to our last story of the day. Story number three. So we're going to go through this one a little bit quickly because we've talked about this a little bit before in the past couple podcasts, but uh, the Republicans are basically trying to ice, slow down, and stop the impeachment of Donald Trump in as many ways as they possibly can. So everything is gearing up for the second impeachment of Trump. They're now working on what the proceedings will look like, how it will be carried out in order to actually convict the president and the Senate. They will have to have evidence, of course, of his wrongdoing that Trump actually incited a riot at the Capitol. This does not hold the same legal precedent as being criminally held culpable for incitement of violence. just want that to be totally clear. I think everyone agrees that Trump did not meet the standard to be held criminally culpable of incitement of violence. That bar is incredibly high. It just has to be something that is worthy of an impeachable offense, which has a much lower legal threshold. So, Pelosi and many of the Democrats think they have a very good case for it already, and they've got it geared up and ready to go. Let's go ahead and hop on in. This is uh, MSNBC reporting on this uh, just a day or so ago. This year, the whole world bore witness to the president's incitement, to the execution of his call to action, and the violence that was used. So... I, I. Believe it or not, don't take part in the deliberations of, of, delivering, of making the preparing for the trial. That's up to the managers. But I do see a big difference between something that we all witnessed versus what information you might need to substantiate an article of impeachment based on uh, large part on a call that the president made and described as perfect. Okay, so there she's talking a little bit about the difference in the substantiation of evidence between the first impeachment and now this impeachment, which I think Pelosi is honestly pretty spot on on that. Trump publicly came out in a rally that was televised on national television, provoking and promoting his people to literally march down to the Capitol and told them that he was going to march with them. Not a good look. The first impeachment was one uh, was on a pretty shady phone call that Donald Trump had with, uh, you know, your Ukrainian president. You know, you can't, it's difficult to kind of go back and forth. It was very, very easy, I think, to argue both ways on it. This one, a little bit more difficult on the Trump team to be able to argue against. So much of what you're seeing the Republicans do right now is trying to avoid the inevitable. Okay. Many have said that it isn't clear whether or not you can impeach a previous president after because the president is now currently out of office, mainly because it's never been done before. Um, however, a lot of legal scholars agree that that's actually not the case. Most people cite Secretary of War uh, Bill, William Belknap, who was actually, he was impeached after he he was a Secretary of War in 1876. He was impeached after he left office. So we at least have precedent that uh, even within the Executive Cabinet, that someone was left office and was actually impeached after they left. So Many Republicans are also saying that this will just further divide the country and that it should be avoided as a result of that. Um, Also an incredibly weak argument coming from the Republicans right now. So Marco Rubio came out and said this, quote, uh, impeachment will make it harder to get important things done and it's just going to continue to fuel these divisions that have paralyzed the country and have turned us into a country of people that hate each other. So they're basically taking up the argument that they just want to work hard and push ahead on compromise, which of course sounds absolutely ludicrous after these past four years of zero compromise and supporting a lot of the division within the country. I'm sure that Marco Rubio is super excited about getting to all the Biden appointees and getting them put in place so that Biden can start putting together legislation that will go against just about everything Marco Rubio wants to do, right? Of course, Republicans aren't jumping up and down to start working with Joe Biden. So, um, a lot of these arguments the Republicans are giving don't actually hold any footing. Schumer is already planning on getting the trial ready and getting it underway, right? I think we're on the first week of February or so. So like we've talked through in the past, it would take 17 Republicans to vote to impeach Trump. It takes two-thirds of the Senate to actually convict. Uh, if they did impeach him, they would then decide on whether or not to bar him from holding office again. So my prediction on all of this. I think that from where it currently stands, Trump's not going to get impeached in the Senate as the support for the Republicans just is not there, okay, as it currently stands. However, there are plenty of things that could happen over the next two or three weeks that could change absolutely all of that uh, and kind of convince a lot of the Republicans to actually maybe they need to get Trump out of here as soon as possible. So if Trump does come out, with any sort of formalized plans for creating a third party, if it's not just kind of like talk in the ether, right? If it's actually Trump coming out and saying, here's what I'm doing. Here's how I'm putting the party together. We are gearing up for 2022 and 2024 to get the Patriot Party members into Congress and uh, for me to be able to run again in 2024. I think that a lot of the Republicans will be convinced that they then need to move to actually impeach him so that they can keep him from running again. They know that if a third party were created and basically pushed by Donald Trump, um, without Donald Trump actually being able to run, most of the voters aren't going to vote for whatever he pushes. They're not, okay? Trump fans are fans of Trump, specifically okay? They're not a fan of the people that Donald Trump pushes. They're not going to come out in droves to vote for somebody just because Donald Trump's like, oh, he's actually our guy. And you saw that in the case of 2020. There were plenty of people, plenty of Republicans that Donald Trump came out and campaigned for very, very hard, but they didn't come out in the droves that they did in order to actually vote for Donald Trump. So, If they know that Donald Trump is not going to be able to be the head of that Patriot Party, I think if the Republicans came in and basically said, listen, you're convicted, we're impeaching you, and we're barring you from ever holding federal office again, the Patriot Party is going to dwindle out very, very quickly. But the Republican Party will still be pretty divided. If Trump just sits back, keeps his mouth shut, and lets this play out, I think he'll be fine and he probably won't be impeached. Of course, we all know what Trump really struggles with, though, Keeping his mouth shut and not saying anything at all. I don't know. Maybe him not having a Twitter and a Facebook might actually work out for his favor right now. (laughs) So, with all of that, that is the end of our third story. Let's hop on into our last segment of the day something that made me smile. So, this past weekend, something that made me smile was I got together with a whole bunch of my guy friends and we did our quarterly Brownwater Club. Okay. Brownwater Club, very, very simple. Guys get together, they have their own. Everybody brings their own specific type of whiskey. It can be a scotch. It can be a bourbon. It can be a Japanese whiskey. It can be whatever type of brown, you know, water, brown liquor that they want to bring. And we all get together and try them, sample them out and decide which one is the best. We had a ton of fun and I have a great recommendation for any of you bourbon lovers out there. It's a pretty expensive bottle, but One of my buddies that got it actually ended up winning for the entire weekend by a very, very large margin. It's called Whistlepig Rye. It's a 10-year. Super, super good. Definitely go and check it out. I've had another Whistlepig bourbon before that was also great, so can't really go wrong with them. It's about a $90 bottle though, so a little bit expensive, but you will thoroughly enjoy it if you get it. So that's what made me smile this weekend. And I you know, hope that you'll be able to go out and maybe try that bourbon and enjoy it as well. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of the show. Thank you for stopping by, for checking us out as always. Find me on Instagram at Split The Difference. I'm on YouTube at Split The Difference, Facebook Split The Difference, and my website SplitTheDifference.com. Drop me a like, a subscribe, five-star review, share me around to all your friends and family if this is stuff that you actually enjoy and you want for me to keep going. Give me good hints on content that you enjoy and that you like, because that always helps me out a ton too, to know what you guys like to listen to. Uh, thank you so much for stopping in. Always, as always, y'all remember, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We're going to do our best to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.